Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 16 years of law enforcement analysis experience. She went from working with 70 analysts in L.A. County Sheriff's Department in California to working with one other analyst in Vancouver PD in Washington State. She specializes in human trafficking, and she started as a postal police officer. Please welcome Tammy Michelson. Tammy, how are we doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Jason? Very good. How is the Pacific Northwest these days? Well, uh, today was a beautiful day. We didn't have rain, and <laughs> I actually opened up my window. Good. I uh, I saw here in Florida on Saturday, it's supposed to be 29 degrees for what? a low. How about that? In March. So, ugh. It's crazy. Anyway, crazy, crazy weather. All right. So, let's get started. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? I don't recall the exact moment I first learned of crime analysis, but I do know that it was during a time in the early 2000s that I was actively seeking to move on from my postal police officer job. I found, you know, kind of a lack of challenge, I guess, after a while in the postal police position. And I was able to keep myself going just by being involved in my labor union. I became a shop steward and then an executive board member for the Postal Police Officers Association. But really, I didn't like wearing a gun belt or a vest. And I the only way I could get through shotgun qualifications was by using four letter words. So <laughs> I knew I needed to move on. So I was doing my research for possible next steps. And I was also applying for other federal jobs, but wasn't having much luck, wasn't getting any nibbles. And then, you know, I'm sure it was online. I learned about this crime and intel analyst certification through California Department of Justice. So I started taking classes in 2004 at UC Riverside, where, you ready for the name drops? Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like the name uh, drops. Legends such as Steve Gottlieb, who's been on this show before, mm -hmm. Dr. Phoebe Kelso, and also Brian Gray, who's been on this show, nice. um, were three of my instructors. So I think that gave me an excellent start. Um, I also met other people who were already working in the field and just, you know, were getting their certification. One friend I met there who later became my supervisor at LASD was Annette Fajardo. So after I got my classes done, I, I started an internship with an organization in LA that was sort of HIDA affiliated. Mm -hmm. I started testing and interviewing, even though I didn't have my intern hours done. I even drove out to Phoenix for an interview with the late, great Brian Hill. I was invited back for a second interview, but I turned it down because I really didn't like that much desert. I <laughs> could like the rain, apparently. <laughs> Eventually, yeah, that's what I got. So meanwhile, I had a couple other irons in the fire, a couple of interviews and stuff that, that I had done. And I got called back from LA County Sheriff's Department for an interview, got through that just fine. And then um, at that time, there was no centralized crime analysis unit 
And so the second interview was with the actual sergeant and lieutenant from the station that was wanting to hire an analyst. And so I went to Carson Station and interviewed. And I remember one thing I said in that interview, which was, I want to be your secret weapon. I saw their eyes light up and that's how my career in crime analysis began. What was your anticipation of being the secret weapon? Well, because I just wanted to be that person in the background Mm -hmm. who's finding out information that patrol officers or detectives maybe didn't know. And I mean, that's kind of how I am. I just kind of want to be in the background and making things happen, but not necessarily be a star of the show. I gotcha. So before we get into the analysis aspect of your first job in LA County, back to being the postal police officer, what does a postal police officer do? Our primary responsibility was a security of postal facilities. And so some of the duties would be like, you know, more like being a security guard. I mean, we had to be trained and qualified every year and all these different things. But it was a lot like being a glorified security guard. I hope none of my postal police friends are, are listening. And, <laughs> but they know. I mean, we, I went to training at Fletzy, taking it very seriously And like, oh, yes, I'm going to be a police officer. And there were other people who were more familiar with the role because they had worked with postal police in their home facilities in some other role. And I had never known any postal police. There was one guy who said, when do we get the badge checking class? You know, like checking people's work badges as they came in through the entrance. And I'm like, don't be so cynical. We're really going to do great work. and we're gonna... But really, that's kind of how we spent a lot of time. Although I did time as a communications officer in Pasadena, which was a lot of fun. And I guess one of the coolest things I learned how to do was drive on the airfield. I actually got to drive a postal police vehicle out onto LAX airfield. And so what's what's all involved with that? Well, we just had to go out there and be trained by somebody who was certified to train to, you know, where you where you're allowed to drive your car and planes have right away. So <laughs> they're a lot bigger, yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think you brought from being a postal police officer that helped you in your role as a crime analyst with LA Sheriff's Department? Well, I mean, it was a whole different set of laws, really federal laws versus a lot of Mm -hmm. state laws. It came up sometimes where I was able to go, oh, well, the postal laws say this and that. And actually, postal inspectors are the ones who do most of that. They're like the detectives of the postal inspection service. They do most of the investigations they don't arrest juveniles. And so a mail theft case had come up and I was like, yeah, they're not going to, they're not going to do anything more than, you know, than we can do because they, the feds don't arrest juveniles. Mm, yeah, that's right. And I don't know, report writing, perhaps not that I've written a lot of reports as a crime analyst, but I know a good report when I read one. So then let's go into your start with LA County Sheriff's Department. As I mentioned in your intro, you're walking into a place with 70 analysts. At that time, I think it was a little less, maybe 40-ish, 50-ish. By the time I left in 2016, there was 70 or more. There had been a lot of hiring and the unit had been centralized by that point. So there was a process, though, uh, for new analysts when I came on to do sit-alongs. You would go to different stations and sit with analysts and hear their 
their take on things. And one of the most enlightening ones I experienced was with Annie Mitchell. At that time, she was at the Norwalk station. You chuckle. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she was fast talking. She's a firecracker. She is. um, With many useful insights into the department and how to be a crime analyst, because she had a lot of history there. I believe she was a dispatcher back in the day. Just knew a lot. Everyone in LA County Sheriff's Department, I think, knows Annie Mitchell. And she was one of the first ones to be promoted to becoming a crime analyst supervisor. So then after that, she was also my supervisor. Oh, here's an insider factoid you might want to know about. Annie hosts the best Mardi Gras parties outside of New Orleans. (laughs) Oh, that is a good scoop. What makes them so great? Well, maybe it's because it's the only Mardi Gras party I've ever been to, actually. (laughs) But no, it was always a lot of fun. Just a lot of really good food, drink dancing laughs yeah 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 she i can imagine she can be quite the party host definitely Um, yeah i have to put that on my bucket list uh to come out there but i think she was talking about moving to north carolina which is obviously a lot closer to me than california but i don't know i haven't caught up with her in a in a while so all right. And then it's L.A. County. So this is a really geographically, this is a pretty big area, right? So while there are 40 analysts, you, you mentioned they weren't centralized at the time. So do you get stationed at a precinct and how many analysts were there? Yeah, I was, my first assignment was to Carson Station, patrol station, kind of positioned in back where the detectives sit. And I was the only analyst there. Okay. So how intimidating was that when you think back about it and you're starting out there? I would say I was pretty intimidated, but I was really intent on making this job a success. And so in my first year, or after I was there for a year, I got this distinguished, and I'm going to be reminiscing a lot because, you know, thinking about (laughs) this interview just really made me reminisce a lot. And I actually got a hold of someone from LA that retired a few years ago, and I haven't been in touch with, but I was like, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can get a hold of Barbara Hazard, who retired. And, And indeed I did. So it was a lot of fun to get caught up. Yeah, so I got this award, this Distinguished Service Award, after my first year for helping solve four crimes. One was a convenience store robbery I found who ended up actually confessing to the robbery. A frequent pawner who was also on probation, so they did a probation search and found a bunch of stolen property in her house. Also, a local gang member who I saw had pawned some stuff to include a camera. And at the time of the report, the victim didn't know the serial number to the camera. So I called him up. I said, is there any way you can find the serial number to that? And he says, yeah, actually, I found the manual to the camera and I wrote the serial number on it. So he faxed it to me and it matched. So that was another suspect that was charged with burglary. And then how, um, how did you back to the convenience store? How did you help solve that one? Well, I kind of went to uh, recent parolees in the area and it was, the description was somewhat unique. And so I was able to find somebody that I thought really matched. Then they picked that person out of a lineup 
since she was on parole, they were able to go do a search warrant. They found clothing that actually matched what she was wearing at the time of the robbery. And she confessed. Hmm. Very good. So you get rewarded for all this work the first year. Yep. Um, a concept that came up on a, on a previous episode, Joe Lorenz, he talked about the idea of he's a sworn analyst and he understands that it's a lot cheaper to go the civilian route. So he understands that the way of the world is to go the civilian route when hiring analysts. But he also says, you know, it's a lot easier as a sworn officer to learn the analyst tools as opposed to have a civilian come in and learn everything about the police department. You know, as you're going through this, this first year, how do you think you were introduced to the police department and got yourself acclimated to everything that was at the police department in order to do your job as an analyst? Well, I do think that LASD has a better uh, onboarding process now and that they're centralized. So yeah, I did kind of feel maybe like I was being released into the wild. (laughs) But um, little by little, you know, I learned things and made my way. And I think being situated in a place that was really convenient for detectives was helpful. I was, you know, a lot more in tune to what the detectives were doing than to what patrol was doing, honestly. In retrospect, if I were to do it over, I would try to know more about what patrol's doing and to support them better. But overall, I would summarize my experience at LASD as being investigative support. That's what I like to do. I like to dig in and find those details and do some OSINT stuff, read different reports and try to bring it together. So then you're here at the Sheriff's Department for about 10 years. Do you stay at the same station or do do you move around to different stations? Oh, yeah, I did move around. After that station, I went to a gang intel unit for just a little while and then on to major crimes. So I was able to do a lot of really cool stuff at majors, support a bunch of different teams, And I'd say did some of my best work supporting a surveillance and apprehension team while they were out in the field. Well, it was, there was a few teams, surveillance and apprehension. And then one of the areas that I got to learn a lot about was cargo theft. I really hit it off in particular with one investigator there. So, so when you have an opening like that, you know, where you hit it off and you can work really well with someone, it's makes things really interesting. And we had one case that was one of my all-time favorite cases. It was just so fun. It was so, you know, from one step to another, we just kept progressing through this. And they asked me to name it. We named the case Operation Freeloads. (laughs) It um, It was a series of fraudulent cargo pickups where suspects pose as legitimate trucking firms in order to obtain the product. So they'll just drive off with a whole whole load full of something destined for some other place and never shows up. So by looking at all these different cases, linking some pseudonyms, some repeat fake IDs and just the MO, we found cases spanning seven counties in California with an estimated load total of $4 million. Wow. So we had a really clear headshot of one of the drivers that one of the victim warehouses had taken. 
because they'd been ripped off before, I guess. So they started taking clear headshots of the driver before he drove off with the load. So I ran facial recognition in LA County, didn't hit anything. So I reached out to the analysts in San Bernardino County and they ran it against their set of photos. We got a perfect match on a guy who just happened to be a truck driver. (laughs) So he was one of the drivers. And then there was another one and I kept trying to figure out who this guy was. And then one day, one of the detectives said, well, you know, I have this thumbprint of his, but the lab refused to process it because they said it was too big. I'm like, what do you mean it's too big? And he showed me this PDF scan of a thumbprint that like filled more than half of the pages, like this six inch tall thumbprint. (laughs) (laughs) So I just converted it to a JPEG, downsized it to the size of a thumb and we submitted it. And then we ID our (laughs) second driver. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I can't believe that worked. That's all it took, huh? That's it. So, huh. So how are they coming up with the right paperwork in order to be able to even get the loads? Yeah, a lot of that information is available on public websites. The name of the company, the phone number, the address. And so they'll change what they need to change. And I think they can dummy up if they need to show certain insurance documents. They'll um, dummy that up too. Huh, it's fascinating. So is is this all next to a port or just next to a distribution center what was what what was the area where this was taking place oh these were happening all over like i said it was seven counties so Mm -hmm. well yeah a lot of the warehouses that got hit were down by the port of la Hmm. i wouldn't have thought about that i mean that's kind of kudos to them that's getting thinking outside the box in terms of uh ripping people off and stealing product um it seems like they were kind of successful at it for a while until you got them yeah it's an mo that repeats though unfortunately oh, okay that's a common I don't think practice they've quite figured it out yet how to stop it so then you decide that you want to move on to vancouver pd in washington county which as i mentioned is a lot smaller department up in the pacific northwest Why did you make the jump from L.A. County to Vancouver PD? Well, after I was at Major Crimes Bureau, I I did maybe about a year or so in this brand new, newly created Human Trafficking Bureau in Los Angeles. The new incoming sheriff, Jim McDonald, had created, and it was exciting. It was fun. It was, you know, we had this like almost more than half of a floor of this big building that they refurbished and there were all kinds of law enforcement in there, federal, FBI, ICE, NGOs, service providers, child protective services had space in there. It was, it was a lot of fun, but it was a longer commute for me. And that commute was just brutal. Plus, at that time, I was also working on a master's degree. So in spring of 2016, right before I was going to graduate, I flew to Vancouver to interview for my next role. And And you just were responding to a, a job opening? Yeah, I saw this job opening and I contacted the analyst that was up here working and she filled me in and I applied and 
got an interview and figured, well, um, I mean, virtual wasn't such a big deal back then in 2016, but a lot of people were opting for that. And I think that it was beneficial that I actually flew up here and interviewed in person. So that's, this has been my role and I'm here in the beautiful PNW and it's great, but there are differences. I can only imagine. What are some of the differences? Well, to quote Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction, it's the little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there. It's just the little differences, like going from, like you said, 70 analysts to being one of two crime analysts. In LA, it was like having a built-in regional association. And even though Vancouver is part of the whole Portland, Oregon metropolis, and it's a pretty, you know, big populated area, Vancouver still kind of feels small towny. And one of the like things that's different that I was just like, what? How can they do this? But they do this and it works. Here's what they do. They still do this. It's great. Can you ID me emails? So you get a a decent or maybe a not so decent surveillance photo of, say, a shoplifter or a car prowler. That's what they call car burglars up here. And you send it out an email to everyone in the department. And so often somebody goes, oh, I know who that is. I arrested that person six months ago and here's who it is. And we never did anything like that in Los Angeles. I think there just would be too many. <laughs> You'd be going through a uh, hundred emails every, every morning. Probably every two hours. Yeah. So, so what, then what kind of task are you doing up there in Vancouver? Well, I do, you know, I end up doing more statistical stuff than I did before. I would say I've actually learned in the last year or so some SQL because now we have a different RMS and I can actually write query, custom queries to get the data the way that I want it most of the time. And I'm learning Power BI to put together some dashboards and stuff like that. But I have brought up my interest in human trafficking to Vancouver, but it's very different here. You know, LA, they dedicated a lot of resources towards human trafficking, but here, like in a lot of smaller or mid-sized departments, there's not really any dedicated, you know, units that do nothing but work trafficking. And so I did get that assigned to my unit, which is the special investigations unit. So if there is a case to investigate, we investigate human trafficking. But one of the things that I do, and I'm very thankful that my agency allows me to do this, is to participate on a non-investigatory human trafficking or anti-human trafficking task force where law enforcement is invited to attend um, people from the prosecutor's office, juvenile probation, victim service providers, and so forth all participate in this. I would recommend that if you are an analyst in a agency that doesn't have a dedicated human trafficking unit that you should look to see if there are any of these non-investigatory human, or even if it is an investigatory one, human trafficking task force. You could be really involved in that way and in terms of what's happening in the community, and it might not necessarily make a case, but you'll likely meet some lovely and fascinating people. So that's one of the things I love about it is just getting to know these, like, you know, I call them my, my social worker work people. So it's a different point of view. 
And so through that, you know, there's this multidisciplinary approach. While this was an existing task force before I got here, I actually have looked at this uh, document that the International Association of Chiefs of Police put out a few years ago regarding multidisciplinary collaboration. And it's a whole model or a, a roadmap for a task force to go on. So I've looked at that and assessed where ours is at and tried to move us further down the road in the development of that task force. So while I don't actually get to spend a whole lot of time on actual cases in Vancouver, I do spend time working on the task force and getting projects that impact the community. And I think that that's the best thing is if you can impact and reach out to the community and make a change at that level before it actually becomes criminal, well, that's time well spent. So what's the jurisdiction of this task force? The county, Clark County. All right. And then how many police departments are involved? Just my own right now. Oh, okay. And now I have started up an Intel meeting for other agencies. And we did have a meeting last quarter and I have a new sergeant. So I'm going to see if we can go forward with that. But we're a little downsized right now. We ended up having three analysts. One analyst, Rachel Lowe, left. She was here when I got here, and she has now moved on to a different state. And then the other analyst is out on paternity leave. So I'm the only analyst right now. Once we get staffed up, I'm hoping to resume this law enforcement intel sharing meeting. And because I'm so passionate about human trafficking I thought maybe I should give advice to analysts out there, especially in those smaller or mid-sized agencies, to remember that human trafficking is an exchange of sexual conduct for anything of value, not just money. And I, I think early on, I used to think it was only money, but it's really not. It could be food or clothing, shelter, drugs, anything of value. That could actually make a case. You might be able to read between the lines when you're reading reports, and that could be a lead into an actual trafficking case. Is it safe to say that human trafficking is everywhere? Yes. You're going from L.A. County sheriffs where you can understand, maybe think of that. Yeah, I see where human trafficking could be going on there. But then you're dealing with a very small department in Washington state and seeing it there as well. So it it seems like it's everywhere in between. It is everywhere. And we are right here on what they call the I-5 corridor that runs from Mexico up to Canada. So that is considered sort of a circuit for trafficking. Another thing to think about in terms of your domestic violence cases is that a lot of times that force, fraud, or coercion, which are required when you're dealing with an adult victim of human trafficking, a lot of times the partner is the one who's the trafficker. If there's force, fraud, or coercion that is causing their partner to be involved in commercial sexual exploitation. So as an analyst, you can kind of read between the lines there too and support your DV investigators with that in mind. And then just like I said, you know, this multidisciplinary approach, getting involved in a task force and having connections with victim service providers, because sometimes that's the only thing that you can do for a victim. You might not be able to make a case at all, but you might be able to refer a victim to services.
Hey, this is Shauna Gibson from the Pacific Northwest. This is to all you crazy PEMCO drivers out there. Do you know what a zipper merge is? It is when you let somebody else get in front of you and then somebody comes in behind you. You really don't have to push everybody out. So may you all learn the zipper merge and may the 405 and I-5 be a little bit more pleasant to drive down. Good luck with that, all of you crazy drivers. You are going to be the host of a new video tutorial segment for LEA Podcasts called Small Steps. Just give the audience a little snippet on what they can expect from these videos. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is is there's a lot of things and and without having to sit through an hour-long thing that, you know, get through multiple things at once, just a short videos. And kind of the way I I like to see is, hey, like when you're searching for something yourself on YouTube, this or that, what what do you... you get something specific, you get a small piece and it's, it's a lot easier to digest. So I think the idea behind this is, is really sometimes it might be a, a couple episodes in a row tackling the same type of thing, but it's just a quick, Hey, check it out. Here's a quick tip. Here's how you do it. And for this specifically, it's typically using some law enforcement type data, some data that'll be similar to what you would use and, and how you could use it. So like examples, just, you know, text a column or certain formulas, concatenate, VLOOKUP, XLOOKUP. Some of these, you know, some of these, you, you just, like I say, you might not. I'm still, I don't by any means consider myself an expert. Anything to make it easier, I kind of learn at the same time. And I love sharing with other analysts, not an hour long class. You don't have to sign up for it. It's not costing you $10 yeah. for stuff you might or might not know. It's just a quick videos, quick tips. Yeah. So, so this uh, video series, it's going to begin Tuesday, April 5th. We'll release every Tuesday. The first one is a series on text to columns. Is that correct? That's correct. If you have suggestions for what you would want videos shown of, uh, whether it's in Excel or Access or SQL or whatever program it may be, send us an email, leapodcasts with an S at gmail.com or give us a, a comment in one of our social media postings. Yeah. So how do you normally get your cases? Like I said, we don't work a high number of cases here in Vancouver. I can say that we have received tips from parents We've received referrals from mandatory reporters, such as school staff, uh, child protection services, or juvenile probation. In fact, the case I chose to discuss today as my badge story is a recent case I worked on that stems from my work in our regional human trafficking task force. There was a particular uh, case manager who works for a community-based organization who called me up. She specializes in working with commercial sexual exploited children. She called me up and said that a juvenile client of hers had called her from Orange County in Southern California. Uh, The girl was there with some adults and it sounded like commercial sexual exploitation was happening or about to happen. The caseworker got an Uber over to the hotel and uh, got the girl away from the hotel to a safe place under the condition that there would be no police involved. Uh, 
that's was the request of the girl because you know a lot of these young people think that first thing that they think is that they're going to get in trouble that they're not going to be protected in the eyes of the law and so she didn't want police involvement and yet the caseworker is a mandatory reporter by this point she knew something was up so i called and got a hold of my former human trafficking bureau sergeant from los angeles county in order to get a contact in Orange County. I got a hold of a sergeant from Orange County who specialized in human trafficking, who then put me in touch with another person because I think he was, this guy was off that day for the wedding of his daughter. So I got a hold of another guy, a detective uh, from Orange County, And while scrambling to try to get police out to her, the trafficker was calling and texting the girl. She was scared and ended up telling the adult trafficker where she was. So long story short, the Orange County team was able to set up near the hotel where they were at and recover the girl along with another young lady and arrest the adult male trafficker. So the girl made it home safely where she reunited with family, continued receiving services in our county. And while the criminal case was outside of my jurisdiction, and of course, we all want that good criminal case where we can put charges on a trafficker and have them stick, I wanted to share this case to illustrate the importance of working with community-based resources and also being a resource for them in return. Is this a situation where these victims are being taken captive? No, no. It's uh, There's a lot of you know coercion going on. And here, let me do you this favor. And uh, here, I'll go ahead and send Uber Eats to your school at lunch to bring you food. And that's how this guy operated. So I think, because normally, I guess, maybe even I shouldn't say normally, I, when I think human trafficking, I think of maybe somebody that was uh, non-English speaking coming over and then owing a debt for getting them over here and then having to work off that debt and really not being able to leave their situation. But that doesn't sound like that's what you're describing there. Yeah, I mean, the way that you describe certainly something that happens, but Mm -hmm. the case I just referenced would be what they called or some people call DMST, which is domestic minor sex trafficking. And so it you don't have to come from out of country to be a victim of human trafficking. You don't have to cross any borders to be a victim. It's a lot about relationship, exploitative relationships. And then how successful have you been in terms of prosecuting these? Is there a special penalty that you have in, in Washington state for this? Um, yeah, I mean, every state has laws regarding human trafficking. I think, you know, the TVPA, the, the feds passed that in 2000, which when you think about it, wasn't that long ago, right? The Trafficking Victim Protection Act. And that's when they said there's two forms, there's sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And then states started also passing those same kind of laws. And I believe Washington was the first one to pass their own human trafficking laws. So yes, we do have laws here. It's a lot, it was easier, I would say, in California because they have an ability to bring someone to trial and 
they're not required to bring these minor victims to trial. There's other ways that they can prove that they did what they did. Here, we do have to depend upon the willingness of the victim to testify. So wait, how did they, how did California get around that? Oh, they've just passed those kind of laws. Yeah, there's an interesting um, use of this mayhem law in California. I always thought was fascinating. And they're able to use it as an enhancement for when a trafficker has branded their victim with, say, a tattoo. So I think, you know, at least in California, they probably traffickers have kind of stopped doing as much tattooing because of that. Instead, they give them maybe a piece of jewelry. I don't know. That's what I've heard. Well, yeah, they'll, they'll, if that's how you're going to get them, then they'll quit, they'll quit doing the tattooing. They'll give them something else that they won't, you know, it's, that makes sense. You give them something like a piece of jewelry and then it's not something that you could uh, link as easy to them. What do you see human trafficking being like in the next five years? Is what, what trends do you in, anticipate? Or Well, here in the Pacific Northwest, in Oregon, actually, there are efforts to completely decriminalize what they would call sex work. And so that would, if those kind of laws start to pass, then I think that it's going to be very impactful on trafficking There's going to be fewer ways to, I think, investigate human trafficking. And wherever there's an adult market, there's going to be a market for underage victims as well. Hmm. That's the reality, how it is right now. And um, so, you know, if those type of laws start passing, because we know, you know, once one law you think about marijuana, you know, one state passes it and then another and then another, and then pretty soon it's legalized. And so they're thinking about legalizing prostitution. Yeah. Well, I think actually decriminalizing it. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Okay. I guess see that. And so this will kind of blur the line a little bit in terms of when you all investigate human traffic. Yeah, I think that it will. And I think that, you know, kind of sends the wrong message to young people. It says this is a legitimate way to make a living. And just my opinion, it's a way for people who have been oppressed to make a living. Hmm. Also, what's next for the task force? Well, we are, we don't really have a steady form of funding. And right now we don't have a a lot of things to spend money on, but we're working on getting a fiscal sponsor from a 501c3. And if we can do that, then we can do some, we can do some more successful fundraising, be able to cover our expenses and hopefully find new things to do to fill the gaps that we have in our county. Yeah. So I would think, uh, too, like definitely some public service announcements so you can help parents, especially identify patterns that would fit into human trafficking. Definitely. So let's move on. We'll talk about something a little bit lighter and brighter. So you've been working from home for the last couple of years, correct? I have. So not only did I reduce my commute tremendously after moving to Vancouver to like a five minute commute, now I have like a 30 second commute, (laughs) but we are going back to the office later this month. The governor has lifted the indoor mask mandate, and I actually look forward to getting back to the office. So wait a minute, you've been working from home 
as a COVID protocol this whole time? Yeah. Actually, in 2020, I was on some leave. I had breast cancer and I was off for surgery and treatment. And by the time I came back to work, I was working from home. So I actually haven't worked in the office since January of 2020. Wow. So that's, there's a lot to unpack there. So um, first off, congratulations on beating breast cancer. Thank you. So does that make you more susceptible to COVID? Uh, No, I don't think so. Okay. I think when you're going through treatments, you may be more at risk, but I'm well past that. Okay, good. Man, it is this this whole thing's so fascinating to me. Like just how different states and different areas have treated this. Of course, I'm in Florida. <laughs> it's been a <laughs> lot, lot different. And so I'm sorry that I was so surprised because I just assumed we when we talked in the prep call yesterday and you mentioned you worked from home. I just figured that was something that you worked out with the police department. We didn't get into much details about it. I had wasn't even on my radar that people are still quarantining so to speak because of COVID. Yeah Um, well over here on the left coast you know they took it a lot more seriously than you know I I have friends in the south and it was nothing like this. Yeah it, it, it definitely isn't. So couldn't a argument be made though that you can do your job at home? I think so. I definitely think so, but our chief really wants us back and I'm ready to go. So how has it been the last couple of years working from home? I, you know, I've really enjoyed it. I think that it's easier to concentrate, but I do think that maybe I've lost some social skills. (laughs) Seriously. So that's why I, you know, welcome going back and getting to talk to people face to face. And I will be ready with some noise canceling headphones for when it's too much. Yeah. Did you have regular meetings and be talking on the phone or doing Skype or Zoom meetings or anything like that? Yeah, uh, everything has gone. All of our even task force meetings, any any kind of meetings have been virtual. haven't met anyone in person for a year. Yeah. So then do you have access at home to all the databases and everything that you would have access to if you were in the office? Almost everything. All the data I have. um, The only thing I don't have access to is a particular cold computer that has a couple of softwares on there. And actually, I did go in there one time uh, to access that. But it's something I don't really need very often. So I have everything here. And I have two ginormous monitors set up to my laptop. It's fine. I could continue doing it. That's that's interesting. So, But you work from home too, don't you? Yeah, I've I've worked from home since the beginning of 2018. And so I was well ahead of the curve when they sent everybody home in 2020. Uh start, even started growing my hair out then. So I uh, <laughs> I was I wasn't it wasn't quite a shock to be to be working from home. I do find it fascinating with analysts and in police departments that, you know, I worked for some agencies that wouldn't even consider giving you a VPN access 
to access data outside the office. And I, I know there was a lot of departments that wouldn't allow their folks to do that. And of course, in 2020, they were kind of forced to unless they just didn't want their folks to work. We had this forced experiment go on where everybody got on VPN and was able to access all this data remotely. And I think for the most part, it worked out pretty well. I think it did. So I took advantage of this time to have a surgery on my foot that I think I'll be out of this boot and be able to actually walk on it the very week that I have to go back into the office. (laughs) So it worked out great. So yeah, you're just uh, getting everything uh, taken care of on this two-year hiatus. Yeah, well, when you hit a certain age, you know. (laughs) So now, do you have to go back full time or do you think they're going to be able to, you'll be able to split it up to where you, there are a couple of days a week, you'll be able to work from home? I don't know. It seems kind of up in the air with the city. The city is looking into doing a hybrid type thing, but Uh, It sounds like the chief is not interested in joining that program. So probably not, but we'll see. Yeah, it's interesting. See, if you want that to happen, you have to show them how much money they're going to save. That's when they get involved. So Vanderbilt, once they realized that they didn't have to rent out office space and they could turn some of the office space that they owned into clinics and make more money, they they were pretty open to the idea of having a bunch of their staff continue to work from home. So that's where that's where we are. I went from uh, my team, I was the only one working from home to now everyone on my team is working from home. So um, well, how cool is that? But, you know, they they are looking at their private sector. They're looking at their bottom line, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so public yeah, sector, there, maybe not. Yeah. Because I know there was a lot of people. Even even at Vanderbilt, the middle managers hated the idea of working from home. Like people would ask, can I work from home one day a week before the pandemic? And they were, no, they, people weren't having it at all. And so this whole idea of working from home, I mean, it, I think because of the pandemic, it, it moved us forward about 10 years. It would have taken a, a, probably another generation coming up for them to be comfortable letting people work from home and doing the Zoom or Skype meetings and all this other stuff. Now everybody's used to it because they had to be. So I think there's a lot of people are way more open to it. So I think it's great, you know, save gas. No, I mean, time. especially, yeah, especially if you can get access to everything. One of the biggest downsides of it is when you, especially when you work into in a cubicle scenario that you can't necessarily overhear maybe a conversation in which you could chime in on, right? If someone comes yeah. over and is talking to your neighbor about so-and-so and you'd be like, oh, well, I know so-and-so. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm convinced out on that. that's how, how most of good policing happens is cops that, you know, are out at a scene or they're in the hallway and they're talking about this and what happened and who they saw and that's how a lot of the good stuff happens and then of course we can't show up for patrol briefings when we're <laughs> home and one way i i under, understand why it would be advantage for analysts to be there be face to face attend briefings put in the facetime so they know who you are and there's a trust there and camaraderie there but at the same time if you can do most of what you're being asked to do from home because you have access to it, it seems like there at least should be a part-time scenario where you could work from home part-time and work it out that way. Well, we'll see. 
think most of the people that I've talked to, you know, within the last six months or so, I think everybody's back full time. You Again, I was a little shocked when you told me that. I think you're the first person I've heard in a while that's still working from home because of COVID. Really? Yeah. I didn't know we were that unusual up here. Yeah, I think so. I think most people are back to work. So anyway. I don't know if you're listening to this, let us let us know in the comment below if you're still working from home because of COVID. But I don't know. I, I thought most people were back to work. I knew there was still, you know, the mask mandates here and there. I knew that was still going on from place to place. And, and I knew there was still gripes about whether forcing people to get the vaccine. But I did not know that people were still quarantining, still uh, working from home. All right. So let's move on to personal interest now, because I thought it was funny how you put it yesterday. You're like, you're into birding. Yeah. So what do you do that makes you into birding? Well, I like to watch birds. And this is something I've liked to do for a long time. But for a long time, I was like, I would say I was like a casual birder. Like I love to go watch birds, but I had like no interest in like learning what kind of bird that is or, or, or anything like that. I just wanted to observe. And since I moved up here, I started getting more serious about it, I guess. Like, well, what kind of a bird is that? And, you know, do they migrate and where do they go? And there's so much to know about birds. It's amazing. And so I've added this goal to my life now to visit each state and go to their capital city, go to their capital building and try to see and hopefully photograph the state bird for that state while in the state. So I've done eight so far since I started this. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. COVID's really slowed me down. (laughs) (laughs) It'll do that. Just to visit all 50 states alone is quite an endeavor, but to you added several levels of difficulty because not only are you going to each state, you're going to the capital of each state and finding the bird and trying to take a picture of it. Yeah, the best so far, the best picture I have so far is in Texas, Austin. They have beautiful grounds around the Capitol building, and I have a photo of the northern mockingbird with the Capitol building in the background. Nice. Yeah. That is a good one. You have to send me that one. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So, but, and then you were mentioning too the other day that some states have the same bird. Yeah. So uh, Florida, where you're at, actually has the same state bird as Texas. It's the Northern Mockingbird. See, I don't think that should be the case. I think everybody should be different. Yeah, I think so too. But some states do have unique, like um, Alaska has a willow ptarmigan. No other state has that. What kind of bird is that? It's kind of a kind of a grouse. It's like a um, you know, it's doesn't fly, runs around on the ground. I gotcha. Hmm. So do you spend a lot of time outdoors just bird watching? I, I'm kind of a fair weather birder, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much when it's winter time, but I do get out there in the summertime. All right. And of course there's more birds up here in the spring and summertime. Yeah. A couple of years ago, speaking of working from home, I, I looked out my window and on the tree was a bald eagle eating something. Oh, cool. And I got video of it. I went, went out front my, my front door and got about, I don't know, it was about 12 seconds of video of it flying away. And I don't know. I, I, it hasn't happened since. I haven't seen 
seen one since not like that i mean i've seen one just flying but i haven't seen one like in my front yard but that was pretty cool that made me feel like it's like national geographic at home (laughs) that is cool here in tallahassee i mean we always got these hawks and every time i see a hawk and I see a little bird flying and pecking at the hawk, I Uh realize that that hawk had just ate the babies of that little bird. It might have, or the little bird might have been successful in spooking it away. Spooking it away, but that's what (laughs) I feel like when I was like, oh, that little hawk robbed the nest kind of thing. Yeah, I think of that too. Sorry, I got depressing there with that. that. (laughs) It's just nature. Yeah, so do you have a bird on your bucket list that you want to see? Other than going to all these states, is there one bird in particular that you really are looking forward to seeing? Well, uh, the willow ptarmigan in Alaska, because I went to Juneau, Alaska, and I went to the Capitol building, but the weather was kind of crappy, and you have to go up above the tree line to try to find the willow ptarmigan. So that just gives me an excuse to visit Alaska again, but next time I'll go to a different city. Man, that is tough. The best, most exciting time that I found a bird, I was in Oklahoma City, and it was in the fall. I was actually there for a conference, and their state bird is a scissor-tailed flycatcher. They're gorgeous little birds with these big, long, split tails. And so I went out to this place. There's all these birders out there, and I finally walked up to these two guys and asked, you know, hey, have you seen any scissor tail flycatchers? Oh gosh, it's too late in the year. I don't think, I don't think you're gonna find any. But if you know, you go over this way, take a look, and who knows, you might get lucky. So I went over that way that they said, and sure enough, there's two of them, probably the last flycatchers before they flew south for the winter. And I got video to prove it. Nice. Not not good video, but hey, it counts in your goal. <laughs> you yeah. can tweak it however you want to. I mean, it's kind so. of like, you know, solving a case in a way. Sometimes, you know, finding just one particular bird. Now that's that's fascinating. What do, what do you think is going to be your next state? I'd like to go back to Idaho. I was there to the capital, but I missed out. I was a little too early for the mountain bluebird. So maybe Idaho because it's pretty close. And then maybe I'll go to California. I've been to the capital there before, but that was before I started this this journey. So I need to go back to Sacramento, tour the capital, and then try to find the California quail. And also another personal interest of yours, you're a a paddler for the Dragon Boat Paddling Team. Yeah. So uh, after I survived breast cancer, I came back to work. Well, not literally. I mean, I emailed all of my professional staff coworkers and said, hey, I'm back. I survived breast cancer. And one of the gals wrote and said, well, hey, I actually coached this breast cancer survivors dragon boat team, just putting a little bug in your ear and a little video to watch what they do. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I've never been a team sport person, but I joined and these people are awesome. I love my teammates, the camaraderie and the incentive to be fit you know, because you're doing it for your team. There's 20 of us paddling on this big, long boat. And then we had our first race last summer. And I was always wondering, why do they call them dragon boats? Well, when you race, they actually put like a dragon head and a dragon tail on the (laughs) front and back of the boat. And then there's a drummer at the front of the boat. that's like drumming the beat 
to that you paddle to yeah to keep the cadence really really exciting all right because because you were talking about there's 20 paddlers on this team yeah on the big boats we have 20 paddlers and then we have a helm at the back that steers and then a collar usually there's a collar at the front during a race there is a collar so you might be just 10 to a boat on the smaller race boats but sometimes they do race the 20 person boats Hmm. now so Obviously, this is paddling and not rowing. So when you row, you normally have two oars that you're rowing in the water. So do you only paddle on one side the whole time? Yeah, we we switch out, not during a race, but during practice, we switch out. So you, we get to work out both sides. How far do you race? Well, there's 250s and there's 500s. Maybe some places actually run longer races, but I've really only been to one race. And then next year, because we have a mixed team, um, we have men and women, and some of us are breast cancer survivors and some of us aren't. Well, those of us that are breast cancer survivors get to go to New Zealand next year for this festival. It's going to be awesome. Are you going? Yeah. Awesome. It was supposed to be this year, but they moved it up a year due to COVID. I guess New Zealand was like really strict on who they would let into the country. So hopefully it all Oh yeah, out. they shut down the whole country there yeah. for, for a time. I remember that back in 2020. Yeah, I remember that being the headline. So yeah, huh. That sounds really cool though. Yeah, we had one lady who was just not a breast cancer survivor last year who was diagnosed with breast cancer. One out of eight women will get breast cancer. So sure enough, now we have her also on the breast cancer thing. And she said, the first thing she thought of is now she gets to go to New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. I always think the the brighter side of life, right? Right. What muscles get sore when you go on a race? Oh, gosh. Everything. Arms, abs, legs. Believe it or not, there's a lot of leg in there. Hmm. All right. Yeah, because I was thinking it was mostly arms, but yeah, I could see, you know, definitely. Well, I'm thinking more rowing. I've seen the rowing where they're actually kicking off with their feet. So Mm -hmm. I know that that was, but I wasn't in terms of the paddling. I wasn't sure how much uh, kicking with the feet. A lot of that. I mean, we don't, our feet don't move. They're fixed, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of power that comes from your legs yeah you should um look it up on youtube and then you'll you'll see what i'm talking about with how this this paddle goes yeah i'm just i want to see the dragon i think that's pretty cool yeah well during see the drums and and everything else do you guys like sing do you have like war chants and do you sing and all that stuff too i guess sometimes they do that um the one race i went to we didn't really do that but i think that they're going to be prepared to do that at the big New Zealand festival. Man, that is really cool. Well, our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Tammy, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Well, Kelly Kimsey, in a recent episode, kind of touched on this a little bit uh, when she said that we, especially as Atlas, must use our critical thinking skills when we're assessing information. So she kind of stole this idea for me, but I'm going to express it in a different way. And that is, you know, here in the United States, and I'd imagine every 
Western democracy, we're privileged to have a veritable buffet of news outlets, social media channels, op-eds, talking heads, you name it. And so when it comes to making up our own minds about what's true or as truthy as possible, I say, please don't go to the buffet and limit your selections to only desserts. You've got to broaden your choices in order to get a balanced meal when you're consuming news. Otherwise, you might find yourself stuck in a confirmation bias bubble. Plus, all those echo chamber calories will go straight to your hippocampus. <laughs> Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Tammy. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking. <laughs>